we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We want them talking trash to Goliath. We want them building a boat and collecting animals. Everybody thinks they're crazy, and they are. I'm your huckleberry. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Can you read, my son? Well, that depends. Can you go fight in the shade? Repent or perish. You know your places. God be with you all. All for all and one for one, then, I guess. Stone Mountain Media. Ale to the King. Welcome back to another episode of Stone Mountain Media. This is Dave here with Sugar Sean, the sweetness himself. How are you doing, Sean? Good, Dave. How you doing? Doing all right. How was church for you this morning? Good. Zach preached a great sermon from Romans 3, verses 19 and 20, I believe. So that was good. Good to sing with everyone. Enjoyed the Lord's Supper together. Um, now enjoying the afternoon at home. You know, whenever whenever a young man gets into Calvinism for the first time, you know, the stereotype is that he goes through a cage stage and then grows out of it. And really, I was I was born into Calvinism. And so I, I don't really know if I ever had a cage stage, but even even with guys that go into cage stages and come out, I think with every Calvinist, there's there's always this caged animal held back beneath the surface, just waiting waiting for Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism to poke its head up so you can just whack it with some good total depravity. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking of this because of Romans 3. You know, I was in class this week, and I was trying to get students to deal with the tension of how could God promise what he promises to sinners in the covenant of grace without being himself a total joke. And... And one student, he raised his hand and he said, because, you know, God believes uh, the best of us that, you know, at the end of the day, deep down, we're good. And uh, I looked at that <clears throat> guy. Yeah. Poor, this poor seventh grader. <laughs> I'm all hopped up. On, I'm all hopped up on Mountain Dew. <laughs> this is, you chose a bad day, son. <laughs> Oh, you think that, huh? You you want to know what God you want you want to know what God knows, believes about everyone? I took him to Romans three, and just smashed that text so hard. So I had a little momentary a cage stage delight, and then moved on, and everyone looks shell shocked, like, "Oh my gosh, what just happened to Mister Bertrand?" <laughs> well, that was that was fun. Nice. Anyway, you ready to get into today's topic? Let's do it. All right. What's today's so, topic? So we're looking forward to, uh, you know, Lord willing, in the near future, a church plant. And anytime, anytime you, you start a church, you got to make sure you've thought through all the inner workings of the church. You know, the, whether you want to use an analogy, talk about the plumbing and the framing and all that of the church, or you just want to get right to it and talk about the government, the polity of the church. It's best to have all of all your convictions laid out in a row, clear-minded on them ahead of time instead of uh, trying to put it all together while the thing's moving, if you know what I mean. So I to that mean. end, uh, I want to talk today about the issue of voting, okay? Now, you and I, we would identify as, as congregationalists, right? Correct. So... Go ahead and define what you mean by congregationalist and, you know, give a spin at defending that. Sure. So we actually talked about this a little bit when we went into baptism. You talked about Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Matthew 16, you have uh, this idea of the keys of the kingdom handed over to uh, Peter as a representation to, you know, as we see later in in Matthew 16, uh, to the apostles as a group. And then in Matthew 
18, we see uh, that same authority, this authority of binding and loosing that which you, uh, you know, bind on earth will be uh, bound uh, in heaven and that which you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, this authority is given to uh, to Peter and then subsequently to the church. We see the church in Matthew 18 acting as uh, the wielder of those keys, uh, determining, you know, the so maybe a helpful phrase that the, the who and the what of the gospel. So when I talk about congregationalism, when we talk about congregationalism, we're talking about uh, who has the authority to make uh, decisions as to, you know, who's, who's in the church. So uh, membership, um, which would, you know, Matthew 18 kind of brings in the, the negative side of that, which is excommunication. So when somebody's not walking in line with their profession of faith, but instead walking in sin, not repenting of their sin, uh, who is it that, uh, is to wield uh, these keys to bind on earth that which will be bound in heaven. And I'm making the statement that it's the, the congregation that's to do that. Um, they're to, to take the responsibility for uh, defending the gospel witness of a church. And the same would go for, uh, you know, as a, in terms of the, that's the who of the gospel, the what of the gospel would be the content of what's taught. Uh, the elders are going to be teaching, but the congregation needs to weigh what's being taught. Uh, and if an elder goes astray, uh, the congregation has the authority and therefore the responsibility to uh, see to it that that pastor is corrected. And if he does not heed the correction that he is uh, himself uh, removed from office and potentially, depending on what's being taught, uh, excommunicated himself. Uh, so broadly, that's that's what congregationalism is. It's uh, the authority of, you know, binding and loosing for, you know, who's going to be excommunicated from the church, who's going to be uh, welcomed into membership. Uh, to some degree, and we can talk about what degree we think that should be, and then uh, and then having to do with you know what's being taught in a church. That's up to the congregation to see to it that those things are in line with what uh, what God's word says broadly. And then, in a real practical way, the the way the congregation exercises its authority over the confession of the church is by selecting its own officers. Uh, right, and yeah, and they do that through you know through voting. That's right; they do it through voting and. We're talking about voting, but, you know, you see you see explicitly voting being made uh, for deacons uh, in Acts six. Uh, you see the the qualification expectations made public for the whole church in, in Paul's pastoral epistles. But really, you know, if we establish that it's the congregation as a whole that holds the keys of the kingdom and included in that authorization from on high is a responsibility to ensure the, the fidelity of the confession of the church, then the, the, the practical way to do that is for the congregation itself to have authority over who its officers are, since those are the officers who are going to be teaching. And then secondarily, it's the responsibility of the congregation to uphold the church's statement of faith, even if you know individual members don't even understand in full, let's say if the church has a 1689 as its confession, even if the church or every individual in the church doesn't understand it in full at one given moment, uh, or even necessarily agree with it all the way down and through uh, at a given moment in the Christian life. To be a member, those members are agreeing to share the burden one with another of, a, of upholding it and defending it against threats external and internal, like you said, false teaching. Um, yeah, that's right. You got other biblical texts where you see you know, congregational polity happening. You know, if we've got someone, uh, you know, maybe he's coming from a different ecclesiolo ecclesiological tradition or, or conviction, you know, some other text that we could point to. Yeah, it's not, I don't have it off the tip of my tongue. What's the passage in Second Corinthians? Is it Second Corinthians? Well, uh, let's start in First Corinthians if we want to go there. I think it's a great place to go. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's start in First Corinthians five, and then we'll transition to Second Corinthians two. Yeah, Second Corinthians two. That's what I was thinking of. So yeah, First Corinthians five. You have uh, a super difficult pastoral case of a man sleeping with uh, his stepmother. Really hard to na navigate. Takes a lot of nuance. I'm flipping there right now. Yeah, you're good. So Paul says in, I'll start at the beginning of chapter five of first Corinthians. He says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles 
that one should have his father's wife, puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul commands uh, the church in Corinth, basically just says, deal with it. Get this guy out from uh, the midst of you, right? Have nothing to do with this, this sinner who's not uh, mourning over his sin, but rather, uh, you know, boasting in it, puffed up, uh, you know, considering uh, why not sin so that that grace may abound, like Paul condemns in, in Romans. Uh, in this state, Paul commands this church to, to take care of this. And, you know, we're, we're obviously putting forward the idea that the church then voted uh, to see this one out. Right? What was the means by which they did this? Well, they had to come to a consensus as a group that what Paul's commanding ought to be done. And, and that would be done, practically speaking, through a vote. Yeah, I, um, I had a good friend who, at least at one point in the past, was a, a Calvinistic uh, Anglican. And he was trained uh, by the guys, I don't know if you've heard of St. Helen's Bishop's Gate or the Sydney Anglicans or uh, the Simeon Trust. It's, they're very exegetically focused Anglicans, you know, to, to their credit. But unless it explicitly, unless you have explicit words, you know, in a given passage, they are very, uh, very concerned with anything that they think is theologizing beyond just the explicit text, which is a problematic and pretty flat approach to scripture. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's going to miss a lot, but he would, he would always say, you know, where do you see a vote in the Bible? Well, if you, if you see a, a decision being made by a body and that decision being made in such a way that it could be recognized publicly as a decision made by that body, you know, whatever you want to call that functionally, you have a vote regardless of the mechanism that that vote is recognized. A decision by a body is a vote, right? That's where the vote is in the text. It's yeah. a decision being made by the body. And in first Corinthians five, you see Paul, not even doing himself, but put it as the duty of the congregation to get it done. He doesn't look at a subset right. of the congregation, but he, he says, this is the business of the, of, of the church. Uh, and it's to be enforced by the church consistent with what we see in Matthew 18, where in discipline at the end of the day, if there's unrepentance followed by unrepentance, uh, it's taken to the church and the church as, as an assembly, the ecclesia, the full assembly uh, makes a decision corporately. And then, you know, you, you were thinking of second Corinthians two earlier. That's right. Uh, if, if you want to flip there, or, you know, I, I can read it either way. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. All right, go ahead and take it away. So if we jump down to uh, verse 5 is where he kind of gets into it. So 2 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 5, Paul says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrawise, contrariwise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. This is uh, speaking of the same man we were talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, well, there's debate about it, but but sure. the, the point still stands either way. Yeah, there's a man in discipline yeah. uh, who stands at this point excommunicated, and therefore, you know, the church has, as Paul says elsewhere, been handed over to Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. Whoever this is, that's that's where he stands. So, yeah, that's, it. that's a, a fair point. So that contra- contrariwise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with, overmuch sorrow so paul says in verse six that it was the uh the this punishment right this excommunication was inflicted of many uh some translations would say by the majority 
right? So there's, again, this, it's a, it's a voting type language. So like, like Dave was saying, you don't have the word vote in the text, uh, but what is something that's inflicted upon the many? Well, the many had a consensus as to what should be done with this individual. And they all acted in light of uh, what they believed ought to be done. Yeah, you, you either had, you either had unanimity or, uh, you know, whatever was determined as the necessary minimum majority, whether simple or otherwise, to make a group decision against this man. And then Paul was calling them to, to in kind, make us in the same process, make a decision to reinstate him in fellowship. That's right. Uh, let, let's, let's look at Galatians 1 as well. I don't know if you want to flip there. I've already got it pulled up. Uh, but with, with Galatians 1, uh, if you want to read that for everyone, we're going to see we're going to see a practical example, uh, even from verse two and then jumping down to verse six, a practical example of where Paul holds the churches, uh, the, the churches responsible for the false teaching that were present in those churches. Uh, so, you know, in Revelation, you've got him very much holding the pastors responsible. And so. You know, you don't want a form of congregationalism that ignores the true authority, the unique authority of the pastors. And we can talk about that, uh, whether today or at another time. But here in Galatians, you see uh, Paul come in hot against the churches themselves and not just the angels of those churches. Yeah, I think I think today will be a good day to talk about that because I think it, it flows off the idea that we're going to talk about in terms of what we believe about voting. Uh, there's a way to talk about the church as the church as a whole uh and we're not we're not sweeping out when we say something like that we're not sweeping out any distinctions within that body so i think it'll be helpful to to hit on that yeah yeah we have, we'll have to be uh ready to deal with some objections because we're going to be introducing objections to ourselves but anyway let's deal with it one thing at a time and let's uh get get galatians on the table sounds good you want me to start at verse or just start from the beginning and how far in do you want me to go just to uh, basically just through six. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren, which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you in peace from God, the father and from our Lord, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So one, one through six. There's, a, there's a false gospel. He's about to, from six on, uh, severely criticize the tolerance of the churches in Galatia. And he's addressing the churches and not a subset of the church. Uh, when bringing this criticism and this charge to to make right. Now, we're at a good point then to say, okay, so we, we've just put forward both philosophically why congregationalism and then some, some textual evidence of seeing congregationalism uh, at play. And uh, where... We don't need to deal with every objection because, honestly, there's a ton of, uh, of texts that other traditions are going to want to bring to bear in debate against congregationalism. And not all of them are, one, as spicy as, as they might sound initially, or two, relevant to the, I think, appropriate objection that should be raised in what we're going to talk about. So specifically, I want to talk about the objection someone might bring and say, okay, yes, uh, these charges might be brought to the church, but pastors, as pastors of the church, act in a representative way on behalf of the church so that when they act, they act as the church in a representative way. Uh, so if someone wants to bring that forward, that kind of argument forward, arguing not for elder-led congregationalism, which is what we're arguing for, but rather elder rule, uh, how would you answer that? Repeat the question for me. I'm sorry. Okay. So we've put forward the positive case that theologically and then practically in these descriptive examples, 
the church as a whole and not a subset, namely the office of elder, uh, has, has final authority under Christ regarding the teaching and membership of the church. That, that's, that's our case for congregationalism. Now, someone might bring the objection that in all of the cases we've brought, we've brought up, uh, they only work as arguments for congregationalism if we ignore that, as would be argued in the objection, elders act in a representative capacity for the congregation. So yes, the church is charged to do something, and in the church being charged to do something, the elders are to do it, right? In, in their well, office of, uh, in their chiefly representative uh, office. And so really, it's a charge for the pastors to act. So do you understand the objection? Yeah, I think so. I think for me, I guess, uh, when, we, when we look at Matthew 18, uh, there's a there's a charge, the final, basically where, you know, where does the buck stop in Matthew 18? Uh, the buck stops with taking it to the church. And so I certainly think the elders are to lead in that. Uh, they should be, uh, you know, we, like you said, we're, we're purporting not just congregationalism, but elder led congregationalism. So uh, I want the elders to be in the forefront of that, but whoever's bringing that objection, depending on what text they're pulling from, I'd want to, I'd want to go back to Matthew 18 and talk about what they think it means for, uh, something to be brought to the church broadly. Uh, it seems like the the end all be all rests with uh, the church. Now, again, the elders have a lot of responsibility uh, along the way to that, and even in a vote, I would want the elders recommending to the church, and de uh, depending on the case, giving reasons for you know why they're recommending a certain thing. You know, that doesn't. It's not as necessary in like a receiving a member because it's usually more straightforward. So you're not having to make like a, a big case as to why you're recommending this person for membership. Everyone understands it's because they've made a credible profession of faith and for all intensive purposes are walking in line with that. But any, uh, any more severe case, any church discipline case, I'd want the elders as a form of protection and, you know, taking up their role as a shepherd to be the ones leading in, uh, helping a congregation understand how they should vote. But beyond that, uh, it seems to me that it ends, uh, things end with the church. It ends with the congregation uh, having the final say as to, uh, you know, what the decision should be moving forward for the church broadly. Yeah. And I mean, the objections could still be returned that if you understand the office of pastor as a representative leadership office, that take it to the church really could be a, a, a take it to the pastors of the church. That's certainly a position that, that I know uh, a number of brothers who hold. Uh, at the end of the day, though, uh, it is a take it to the assembly. Right. That's what. Yeah. What does you know, church mean? Yeah. You have to actually you can't just dismiss because of a system what the word actually means. And. And if you read it in connection with, let's say, 2 Corinthians 2, for example, uh, I, I think you have a lot stronger position to say that the congregation, the many, the many assembled, uh, make a decision and then are to enforce that decision and then are to change their mind in light of repentance. Uh, so I, I think you're doing more of a, of a system stretching of a text than, than dealing with the text itself by overplaying the representative nature of, of the pastorate. Uh, I'm not, I'm not denying that there is that kind of nature in the office, um, which we can talk about from revelation, but I think you're dismissing the text for what it is by, by overplaying it. And, you, and then you're going to have to be then, you know, misreading. I think some of the descriptive text we brought up, um, I think another point is that Paul, when Paul wants to specify that he's speaking to an office in the church, he's not shy to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Right. He's, he's very willing to address elders, uh, to address deacons, to address the saints broadly. And, and so when, when you've got a guy not shy to directly address elders, 
uh, and he's talking in broader terms, congregational wide terms, I think you just take him at his word. Um, would be my, my, my two sense to that. And then, and then if we do go to, to revelation, you know, in the letters to the churches, you know, notice that they're the letters to the churches as an introductory matter. Every letter ends, uh, by making it clear that it's, it's to the church, uh, to be understood, heard by the church, that something's to be done by the church. And, and not just the singular one receiving the letter, but all the churches, right? Because they all mutually hear one another's letters of encouragement and rebuke. Now, those letters start with to the angel, right? To the messenger, to the star. There is a unique, dignified, chiefly representative role, uh, ministerial role for the pastor, which is why the pastor is addressed at the beginning of each of those letters. Right. Uh, and so... He is definitely held uniquely responsible for the errors in the congregation, and he's chiefly responsible to ensure that the congregation goes about fixing those errors. But it doesn't mean that he uh, has the authorization, the, the, uh, the political power to make right all that's wrong in and of himself. He, he's ultimately responsible if it's not made right. It's his job to make sure it's made right, but he's not, he doesn't have all the mechanics in himself to make it right. He has to lead the congregation in making it right. Right. And, and you know, you have this, uh, you have this connecting of authority and responsibility with congregationalism, right? This idea of, okay, if you're, if you're, if we're responsible as a church for, uh, for that, which is taught in our church and those who are in our church, uh, we need to have some type of authority connected with it to be able to exercise that, um, that res- to, you know, respond to that responsibility in a, in a way that's constructive. And so we're not, we're not saying that the, the pastor doesn't have uh, an, a, an authority uh, accompanying the responsibility uh, that he has, the greater responsibility he has in his congregation. I wasn't going to, but I'm sure someone is thinking about Acts 15. So you might as, we might as well just address it uh, so that they don't think uh, we've just forgotten that the text exists. Okay. Um, so uh, you want me to read it? Uh, you already have it up? Yeah. Uh, sure. Just whatever's necessary to get the gist of what's happening politically. Yeah. So we'll start at verse uh, – start at verse 4. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles – and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy ghost, even as he did unto us and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Even as they, then all the multitude keep, keep, kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among them, among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. And then James gives the kind of the decision of, uh, of the group uh, moving forward from there. I don't know if we want to go through all that. No, it's fine. Enough's been read to establish that there's a doctrinal question. Right. And the doctrinal question uh, needs to be decided in a pretty official binding way. And, and so ultimately, you see, if, if we want to just, if we want to use the language of, of the, the objector for this text, you see a session, right? You see, we'll just say an elder session. Uh, you know, if we really want to have fun with it, you see a presbytery. 
you know, being brought a question, weighing it and deciding for another church. And so this text is both going to be used to argue against congregationalist position for the autonomy of the local church, uh, but also the, the idea that, that the congregation itself is responsible for its teaching and in memberships, they're going to say, well, look, here's, here's really a board of elders and a board of elders from another congregation from outside making that decision for them. And so this is going to be cited as something that undermines, and if someone's bringing it up, undermines effectively in their mind, congregationalism. Uh, the problem with that is that what we see, what we actually see in Acts 15 uh, isn't in structure what what any ecclesiological model actually puts forward. So no existing right. uh, ecclesiological system puts into practice what is seen in Acts 15. So it, it's 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 disingenuous to cite Acts 15 uh, as as a descriptive event that supports one system and undermines another. The, the people that are going to bring this up the most would be the Presbyterians. And what you see here is not Presbyterianism uh, because what you have is, is one church sending an apostle to another church's elder board. And, and that other church's elder board mixed with apostles and elders making a decision for not just this one church, but a region of churches, you know, in Galatia. Uh, that's not what happens in that's not what happens in Presbyterianism. That's just not what that's not what Presbyterianism is. You have a region right. with representatives from each congregation making up a higher body, and representatives making a higher body, and so on and so forth. You don't have another single church's elder board making this kind of decision for you. And this isn't Episcopalianism because you have an elder board and not. Uh, you know, you don't have a, a bishop at the end of the day making a decision in a hierarchical fashion. It's, it's again, it's one church and its leadership making a decision for another region of churches altogether. And so no system can claim this in a straightforward way as a justification for the system. The Congregationalist looks at this and says the reason that no system can just straightforwardly claim this as justification for their system is because you're dealing with uh, a unique time of the church age where you have an overlapping of the ages and a decisive moment of whether or not we're going to have one or two churches. As, as the, the age of the Old Covenant is not yet fully passed, with the destruction of the temple, and yet the age of the new covenant has already begun. Uh, you've got a question of are Jews and Gentiles going to be one in the same church or worship Christ in two different churches fundamentally, a right. Jewish church and a Gentile church. And so an apostle brings the matter before a board of elders that includes other apostles and a decision is made that in this pivotal establishment of the church among all nations, there will be one faith, one baptism, one church. So that would be my, my handling of Acts 15, my explanation of why it doesn't undermine uh, congregationalism. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a proof text for Presbyterians. Yeah. Uh, yeah far, far weaker than the Presbyterian position on baptism is their, is their position on government. <laughs> and and I, I, I do mean that with, with complete respect, but uh, any time that I've ever given any second thought to, to pedo baptism and its legitimacy, I've looked over at Presbyterian government and, and honestly been blessed with a good belly laugh. Because what you don't have in the Bible is Presbyterian government. You want to argue for practical benefits and appreciation for republicanism, as they might call it? Go right ahead. But you're not going to proof text me, and you're not going to out proof text me for sure because I, I can, as cited, I think I can cite way more congregational text than you can with your representative government, which doesn't exist in the New and Testament. And that's, I mean, we do see that as the first 
you know, before baptism, right, that's kind of within the Puritan camp. You see that as kind of the first divergence from the Presbyterians or the, or the Congregationalists. That's right. So still still convinced on paedo-baptism, but uh, seeing a different authority structure in the, in the church. It was the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. They were, they were late to the baptismal font, but early to see <laughs> uh, the need for governmental reform. Right, which I think does, you know, it's not, that's not like an argument. That's just, that's just an observation as to what happens. But I think it, uh, to your point, I think it does point to uh, the clarity of it scripturally, at least a little bit. So now going back to, to congregationalism, we're talking about authority and, uh, you know, with authority, the authority to decide in a public and an effective way. Uh, elders have their authority. Deacons have their authority. The congregation has its own authority, namely authority from the throne of heaven to possess and wield rightly accountable to Christ the keys of the kingdom, to, to officially stand and defend on the right teaching and the right membership uh, of the covenant community. Now, that authority to decide as we've already said, it, it practically, that just means a vote, right? Now, in line with, uh, well, yeah, basically in line with the Charleston Baptist Association of, I think, 1775. I think that was the year. But the, the Charleston Baptist Association of 1775, give or take a few. Uh, we... Well, I'll say what I believe, and then you can interact with it. I believe that though it is to the congregation to vote on things like who are we going to bring into membership and baptize, uh, who is under discipline, and, and who is fundamentally going to be ultimately uh, excommunicated. So someone might be brought into discipline you know, by, uh, by the elders, but that the, the the actual decisive moment of excommunication comes from the congregation. Um, you know, what, what statement of faith is going to be defended here? Who are going to be our officers? All these things require votes and it's a vote belonging to the congregation. Uh, with that, I believe that only uh, the heads of households, so male heads of households, uh, should should vote. So I do believe in a, a kind of representative congregational vote, just not the kind of representative vote that means the elders and not the congregation votes. So I, I believe that the congregation actually votes, not in a kind of representation that, that removes the vote from them, uh -huh. but a kind of representation that recognizes that male head, heads of households um, are those who, because they are men, uh, fundamentally are charged with bearing responsibility. Uh, and I, I can unpack that further, but do you want me well, to, maybe I could ask some questions that somebody might have in regards to, yeah, yeah. Before I do that, do you agree? Yeah, we're, we're in agreement on that. Cool. Just wanted to get that out for the, for the listeners. So I'll leave my <laughs> that's statement fair. Before there. I start asking questions, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll unpack what I mean in different things in interaction with the questions. Okay, so, uh, so you're saying, uh, you know, the matters that we've, we've said should be voted on by the congregation should be voted on by heads of households. That's, the, that's what you've said, right? Yes. And so... Because uh, of covenantal authority. Okay, well, somebody, you know, somebody might ask, uh, you know, there's this idea of kind of what, you know, maybe what really made a lot of sense to me with congregationalism is this idea of, you know, the priesthood of all believers, like, uh, like First Peter 2 talks about. Uh, we've all been made this royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, we, we rule and reign with Christ in Ephesians. Uh, that's not just a promise to men. That's a promise to, to men and women, to, to all who are Christians, is this yep. idea of ruling and reigning the way... Uh, you know, the way I understand it. And so you com I combine that with what we're talking about with Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, this idea of the keys of the kingdom not being given to uh, the elders, but to the church. And so uh, how would you kind of reconcile this idea? It's kind of, you're, you're not talking about a subset of the church, but 
you know, we, we already established that Ecclesia represents the whole church. Yeah. So that question or objection has two parts. Uh, so the first deals with priesthood of all believers. It's a great question. Uh, anytime I would say when I was in Scotland, anytime I would say, oh, that's a great question. Uh, everyone heard it as like a super condescending thing. Like, oh, I thank you. That's thank you, you. Like, that's like they're standing bullshit. in the paint and you're like throwing it off the backboard as you say that to like dunk it on them. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No. <laughs> The, the priesthood of all believers uh, can be affirmed uh, without assuming it means every believer has equal authority to do the same things, which is transparently so when you see that uh, not every believer though every believer is a priest, a king and priest with Christ, rules with Christ, engages in priestly ministry, not every believer uh, has access to the pastorate, for example. So uh, the fact of priesthood of all believers does not require equal access to all measures of authority. Right, and there'll be plenty of people asking that question who would be who would yes and amen that and would even yes and amen much further into uh, the distinctives of, of uh, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, and how that plays out in ruling and reigning with Christ. Well, exactly. Uh, the, the, the they haven't applied statement. it. They haven't thought. A lot of people just haven't even thought through. So it's not. It's not even a, a group of people necessarily. It's not like we're just addressing feminists with this uh, ideology. It's a. It's just a very common. Well, oh, that's you know. Yeah, that's, I, that's just how I, it's taught, and so you're you, you know people very well-meaning people have just tied those two things together in their minds. It's just the way they've been taught about congregationalism. Exactly, and me bringing up you know I had those people in mind when I was bringing up the the pastorate, I, uh, because I, I assume that the people asking this question agree with me that there's limited access to the pastorate, right? Uh, and so I'm showing the principle of we can all equally have access to the priesthood of all believers without equally having access to all measures of authority uh, within the priesthood. And right. So there, even within the priesthood of all believers, there's hierarchy and differentiation, which fundamentally is rooted in the fact that men are male uh, priests and women are females and they conduct themselves as females. So someone might say, uh, well, you know, haven't you read in the New Testament that in Christianity there's neither male nor female? Uh, yes and amen, but we just have to we have to look at uh, what that means. You, you can't just apply that wherever hierarchy is being argued for, because you know we're we're certainly not going to say that in the church it doesn't matter if in a marriage it's a male and a female, right? So we don't actually believe that maleness and femaleness ceases. When someone comes into the church and with someone more sensible, they're going to, again, agree that, okay, well, yeah, maleness is still maleness and femaleness is still femaleness as we look at the officers of the church. And so the same stands for the membership itself in the congregation, in the assembly, broadly speaking, you still have men, women, and children, assuming you have children who have confessed the Lordship of Christ and received baptism and are welcome to the table and, and are members, all male women and children are priests with Christ sharing his rule of the earth, but they do so as they are. They do so in accordance with what they are broadly speaking. And, and what a man is, is one who uh, possesses authority. Uh, the fact that man was made first and then woman doesn't stop to be an ethically binding truth. Once you talk about congregational government, it maintains an ethically binding truth in congregational government. Um, and so now we're, we're even talking more specifically than just men and women, but it's built off this distinction between men and women because we're talking about male heads of households, you know, right. and as, as a head of a household, uh, while it does, it, you know, it does not assume that everyone in his household is in the church, but all those who are in his household uh, and in the church if he's showing himself to be a fit head of household, 
will simply follow his lead. So you have a redundancy of vote or a canceling of vote if they vote differently and one that shows himself to be uh, a failure in something. And so you either have a public embarrassment and a canceling of the meaning of his vote as a man, uh, or you have a redundancy, which is fundamentally just a canceling of his vote uh, as a man, or you have male heads of households voting uh, rooted in the fact that men take responsibility for women and children for their good. They gladly assume responsibility in, in maximal ways and exercise it for the good of those over whom they are responsible. And so you can right. have uh, male-only deacons, male-only pastors, and male heads of households voting for the congregation. The congregation, a judicial body distinct from, larger than the board of deacons, the board of elders, that includes the elders and deacons, but doesn't require every single member to vote. Right. And just to tie, you, you said this, Dave, but just to tie together for uh, people listening, this is probably a new idea that the embarrassment uh, that Dave mentioned with a vote being split between a, a husband and a wife isn't simply just an embarrassment of, oh, those two disagree. That's that's weird. Uh, but like Dave said, following that, uh, you know, you have this male headship. And so the, the role of the, the husband is to, uh, you know, not just lord over his wife, but also, but win her over to, to truth, love her well, teach her what, what ought to be voted for. And so you have this, you have this failure on the husband's part. Oh, he, it's very evident publicly now that he, you know, that he has failed in, in teaching his wife, uh, you know, winning her to, to his position. And then you also have the wife publicly raising her hand in opposition to her husband, publicly not honoring him. Uh, right. Which, which, which makes the Bertrand vote a zero. Right. Or if she votes with him, the Bertrand vote might might technically be two, but it's just one. It's 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 a it's a charade to think that it's actually two. No, that's one. Right, because the canali because the canali vote is two. That's right. So you just you simplify those numbers. You it's one and one. That you right. know, you know, two over two is one over one. We're not talking. And it's not like and it's not like in doing that in any healthy home. Uh, and this is you know just to clarify what we're teaching. Uh, in any healthy home, you're not taking away the blessing of those conversations with the wife as to what the vote is going to be and what it ought to be. Exactly. So, but what you are doing is you're emphasizing the federal headship of the husband right. over some that he acts for his family, for the birth. Right. But and, we would we would we would strongly, you know, strongly uh, teach and admonish the men in our church to be lovingly leading their wives as to the decisions they're making. Uh, you should be consulting with your wife as to that decision, uh, what decision should be made. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, responsibility, authority. Where does that lie? Whose head does that fall on? It's the man. Where's the buck? That's right. So if, you know, if there's uh, a bad decision, his head rolls. If there's a good de decision, blessing comes on her head. And, and you know, another, another point, Baptists are also are often uh, slow to give baptism to children who are confessing faith in Christ and, and are able to articulate the gospel and are showing fruits of repentance and yet still not receiving baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, because every Baptist with horse sense knows it's a joke to give a kid a vote. Hey, this guy committed adultery. And so for a proper case to be had, we're going to talk about that. Okay, eight-year-old Timmy. Listen close. No, no where, where do you think? Uh, no do you have a number? In, do you have a number in mind when you think about you know what what's an appropriate age for for voting? Well, male heads of households it makes it easy. Oh, sure, but uh, oh, when a when a man leaves his father's home, then he establishes his own house. Cool. Even if he doesn't, uh, you know, even if he's flying solo. And so, you know, another thing you're kind of encouraging in in this dynamic, right, because the the people that are going to feel if, if you're not if they're not understanding the all the all the why behind why this is happening. Right. Talking about this, this broad idea um, of men taking responsibility for women and children, which is not by any, that's not by any means some like fringe biblical idea that that's just consistent throughout the Bible, uh, a group that you might have 
feeling forgotten is like uh, older single women, right? And so uh, for them, what, what we want them to see is, is the reality that it's actually a, a great comfort, uh, a great comfort that they have uh, men in their church, elders and deacons, as well as other men, other heads of households uh, that they broadly fall under in terms of, uh, you know, this, these men are here to protect you. These men are here to, right. uh, to, to see to it that this church remains sound. And so they, it should be a, a source of comfort for them that they don't have to take a burden upon their shoulders that God didn't create them to bear. That's right. They, they don't want that at the end of the day because they're not made for it, regardless of what they say. Right. Paul, feminists pulling their hair out, getting a stroke. <laughs> Dave said it's just, they don't we, want to we, you know, we run the, because of the ads we run on our, on our program, we get all these feminist listeners. Uh, and so you have this, this push and pull of, you know, their favorite sponsors are sponsoring us. It must be good. And then they hear this kind of stuff and it just throws them for a loop. You're developing all sorts of twitches. <laughs> uh, so, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm nearing, uh, our evening service time. So did you have any other, any other issues you wanted to hit in maybe uh, 10 minutes or less? Uh, well, I was actually about to ask you if you thought there was anything we've left unaddressed that needs to be addressed or something that we've breezed over that should be clarified further expounded. Um, well, my question to you kind of tells you where, what I'm thinking. I, I know. So I was a little bit disappointed. I'm trying to think of any other um, categories of people that, um, you know, people might be thinking about, but I think the idea that, you know, well, where's your line with, with children? You guys have talked in the past that you don't really want to have any kind of age of accountability thing with baptism, right? Uh, you want to baptize upon a profession of faith. So that kind of, you know, that shows our hand in terms of, uh, who we're okay baptizing. Uh, and I think the idea of when you establish your own home is, is determined by, you know, when do you leave your father? When do you leave your mother? And so I think one thing, no longer- one thing practically a father should be doing or, or yeah, a father should be doing is as his sons reach young adulthood, even though they have yet to leave his house and establish their own home, in preparing them to bear that responsibility well and in showing them the respect that he should be showing them as men and brothers in the faith, I think it'd be very wise for that father to increasingly bring those uh, young men, those his sons, into his decision-making process as he yeah. prepares to uh, very thoughtfully and judiciously you know, make a vote on behalf of the family. I think as they grow older, give them more and more responsibility in the form of bringing them into the decision where he's ultimately right, yeah, casting the know, vote, maybe, yeah. but they know and they're heard uh, that, and that their input right. is actually valued by their dad as he respects them as, as thinkers and, and men of Christ. Yeah. Practically speaking, that's going to, it's going to look like, you know, in the beginning, right. When they're younger, explaining that thought process, what, how you're working through it so that those patterns can start to develop in their minds, uh, which includes, uh, which includes failures, right. Times where you, you miss something. And so you're going back and talking about, you know, how you should have done this differently, that kind of thing. And then as your children mature, you know, their boys mature, giving them opportunities, as they grow into manhood to uh, be the ones on the front end telling you how they would work through it. Uh, and then, you know, correcting them where you can uh, guiding them uh, and, and ultimately, you know, basically not putting them in a situation where when they become a head of their own household, they've never thought through these things. Uh, they don't know what a thought process in, in something like this looks like. Yeah. And my last thing that I, I might've assumed earlier and didn't make explicit, you know, I, I think it's wrong for a woman to vote in a congregational meeting, because I think a vote as, as a public decisive act is an act of authority. And, That's right. and a woman is not to exercise authority over. No, men. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and so it's, I this, think, yeah, it's the same problem with the 19th amendment and women voting, you know, in politics, uh, you know, women are not to exercise authority over men in, in the church, in society. So, and that's from first Timothy two, it's an express prohibition. So I think we talked about the theology uh, more so than the express prohibition textually. Yep. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's really clear. And we're literally talking about exercising authority of the, the keys of the kingdom. And so it really is in direct opposition and it's not, I mean, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but uh, what those texts, what we want to bring from, you know, first Corinthians 11, uh, 
First Timothy 2, those texts are certainly speaking about formal meetings, and this is absolutely a formal meeting, uh, absolutely a situation in which we want to be applying those texts consistently. That's right. Any, uh, any, one, of our, one... any feminist listeners who listen and think we're disrespecting women, if you can show me that you haven't uh, fondly played WAP in the last week, then I might listen to you a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We had to listen to that song on a loop for two and a half hours. I was had to Planned Parenthood one day. But other than that, I promise I haven't listened to it. I, I've listened to it a lot because I've been putting clips from those sermons on <laughs> yeah. Instagram. And I've been, I've been intentionally leaving uh, you know, sections of it before there's speech because I, I don't feel any need to do any kind of PR cleanup for the other side. It's like, right. here's the other side and here's us. Oh, Very sophisticated. Yeah. You know, we're hanging on, hanging on by a thread. Uh, as they bring these just bolsterous arguments against us. Sean. Yes. Your game is weak. <laughs> Weaker than you can imagine. <laughs> you got any last uh, thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you a question real quick. Yeah. Um, just kind of a, a wisdom question that somebody might have. Uh, you know, somebody might hear this and think, wow, that's actually not crazy. That's pretty. Re- that's a pretty reasonable position. Uh you know, I would consider myself, whether they would say they're patriarchal, complementarian, they might, this might really resonate with them. So what would you do if you, uh, what would you can counsel uh, to a brother who's a part of a church that's not doing head of household voting currently, just a, as a member? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you asked me with like a couple minutes left. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's all you need. Well. Are we talking? Are we talking about a guy who is uh, ahead of his own household? Yes. So, you you know how we have educational convictions, and so um, something we do is we we kind of bite the bullet. In yeah, the government's forcing us to pay for public school, and on top of that, we're going to pay for Christian education. So, it, our walking according to our convictions actually absorbs extra suffering. Right. Uh, puts us further in the hole and then we trust there's going to be blessing long-term from it. So it's a good investment. Similarly, uh, I think one thing you can do is carry out these convictions in your own household. That's right. And so it starts with having these conversations, discussions with your own family, bring them into an understanding of these truths and, and start practicing that from that place. Uh, then I think you've really set yourself up to, because you're doing something odd, to, yeah, have open and honest conversations about that with, uh, with other families, you talking to other heads of households, your wife probably having even greater effect talking to ladies. And because uh, at the end of the day, if a lady doesn't vote, she doesn't vote. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, talking to your elders, but you're doing so from a place of strength because you've actually instituted these convictions in your home. Right. And, you and, not, seeking, yeah, and, not, and not seeking to do so in, in some kind of way to, to undermine the elders or be disrespectful, but simply walking in line with your convictions uh, and, and yeah, seeking to bring truth to bear, always being open to, you know, conversations from the opposing side, interacting with those fairly. Uh, that's the way we handle, you know, disagreements within the church. Yeah, that, that's why you get you get your own house in order first, because it it's certainly going to season your future conversations. If you had to have these conversations with people you really care about. That's right. Closest to home. And then you pray, you talk to your elders so that, uh, you know, there's, there's no work in the dark, but there's transparency. They know what you're about. They know what you're doing, why you're doing it. And, and hopefully, you know, they just change their mind. I mean, realistically that doesn't happen, but uh, you know, it's possible and you move from there. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Even even bringing it to them and asking how you can exercise if they have any wisdom as to how you can exercise those convictions properly as you're working through it with them and with others. Yeah. I mean, the answer to that is very clear. You have a uh, you have a flask of uh, Ardbeg scotch that you pull out for every vote. Make sure everyone sees you down in some smoky, peaty scotch. You light up a cigar in the middle of the congregation. I mean, that's how you do it with biblical wisdom. And... Because you'll start me. Smoke wherever you want. Nice. Cool. Cool. If I close this out then? Of course. Awesome. 
Well, yeah, I hope uh, hope you guys enjoyed this uh, this episode from from Dave and I, uh, from Dave and uh, yeah, from me and Dave. And so, sugar. Uh, <laughs> I think just broadly speaking, when when we talk about these things, we're looking at uh, obviously seeking to look at how God has designed uh, creation. How and and you know how God has designed creation is going to influence uh, all walks of life, including church life. And uh, our our admonishment to you is to believe uh, that you know what God has instituted is good, it's right, it's beautiful. Uh, to walk in light of these truths brings brings life. It allows men to flourish. As responsibility is heaped upon a man, he's uh, encouraged more and more. If he's a godly man, to to take that to Christ, uh, to receive strength at His hands. Uh, to grow in godliness uh, and, and in doing so be able to take more and more responsibility, more and more authority, uh, use the talents he's been given well, uh, and then equip his wife to do the same. Uh, so we hope that this has been encouraging for you. Uh, until next time, this has been another episode of Stone Mountain Media. Go with God. below